Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shelley Meng. As many of you remember, in March, we covered the Kinsey Report for its 75th anniversary and discussed ways we can conduct sex research in the present day. You all really enjoyed that episode. So to talk about the future of AI and the data of sex, we decided to bring on Liz Klinger, co-founder and CEO of Lioness and inventor of the Lioness AI Vibrator, and Justin Miller, a social psychologist at the Kinsey Institute and host of the podcast Sex and Psychology. How can the data collected by AI sex toys be used to help understand a wide variety of medical conditions and prescription side effects? Are companies storing and selling your most intimate data? When in your life is tracking your sexual satisfaction most important? Stay tuned for all of this and more on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Liz, let me start with you. How are we using data and AI to learn more about the intimate aspect of life? Yeah, so I guess I'll quickly describe a bit about what Lioness is. So Lioness is basically a vibrator that looks like a vibrator on initial glance, but inside there's a suite of different sensors and it uses biofeedback and an app uh, to be able to visualize arousal and orgasm. So in terms of how Lioness uses data and AI, basically it's it's visualizing arousal and orgasm. So you're able to see different trends and changes in terms of how your sexual response differs over time from a variety of different factors. Oh, that's actually curious. From a data science perspective, I'm interested in the measurement. You use the word, you know, it can see. Do you mean it has a way to measure it? How do you measure it? Is it like an image or it's a physical uh, measurement, you know, how do you measure those response? Yeah, so kind of. So the different sensors are primarily pelvic floor, so force sensor. Uh, There's also a temperature sensor and a gyro in Excel for movement and angle to partly the offset what's, um, what's a motion from pelvic floor versus movement from the person using it. Uh, basically, the pelvic floor data is translated to a chart, so you're able to see the different motions of contraction and, re- and relaxation of the pelvic floor during a session. So Justin, as the host of Sex and Psychology podcast, and as a researcher at the Kinsey Institute into sex, how do you see data and AI being used in the more intimate aspects of people's lives? Well, I think they're creating a lot more opportunities for individuals to learn about and track their own sexual health, but it's also opening up new research possibilities as well. So if you think about the field of sex science, you know, how do you just collect data on people's intimate lives? If you go back to the pioneering research of Alfred Kinsey, he was doing in-person interviews with people. And then Masters and Johnson came along and really wanted to explore the physiology of sex. But they had to invent literally and build their own devices for how to measure these types of things. And it was very expensive, very challenging to do. And so most sex research has kind of been more focused on surveys, people reporting on their own sex lives. And there are some researchers who collect physiological data, but it's very hard to get funding to do sexuality-related research on any topic unless you're studying the negative side of sex, right? When you want to study positive things like orgasm or pleasure, it's very difficult to get, especially government funding, to do that. So I think these apps create a new opportunity for 
researchers to actually gather this type of information because they can now more easily access this. It's more affordable and you can include it in research designs. So there's a benefit to science from these types of developments, but there's also the advantage for the individual user who can get very detailed information and feedback on their own sexual performance or sexual health. You know, there are so many different ways that these technologies are just changing our own understanding of sexual health. You've got, for example, apps that can track fertility for individuals so they can figure out where they are in their cycle so they can time sex you know if they want to have a one of those fertility awareness methods that they're using we also have apps that can connect with devices that go around the penis that measure erectile strength and size and even you know number of thrusts per second right so you can capture all this kind of information and you know some of these penis rings you can actually wear at night to see whether you're getting nocturnal erections because that's actually one of the biggest predictors or indicators of whether or not erectile dysfunction has a physiological cause because if you're not getting nighttime erections that means there's something that's off physiologically so you know these devices can also be used in sort of a healthcare setting to help doctors understand what's actually happening with their patients patients can get a better handle on their sexual health and then researchers can leverage this data as well so, Justin, you mentioned about the Kinsey report at the time was mostly collecting data through surveys, right? But now we have these biological data, these physiological uh, reactions. There's a big question, and obviously uh, in this space, is uh, what's the concern about the data privacy, right? What are things being done in this space to protect the data privacy for the consumers? And also, particularly, uh, something innovative you guys are doing that can be useful for other fields. For example, another area people get very nervous about their data is the financial data, their financial situation. Are there some lessons that can be learned from what you guys do here? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that from the standpoint of being a sex researcher. You know, data privacy and security has always been a concern. And again, if you go back to Alfred Kinsey, you know, he was interviewing people about their sex lives. They were telling him about their deepest, most personal details. And he wanted to keep that information private so it didn't get out, right? Because it could be very stigmatizing or could create a lot of problems in people's lives if this information became publicly available. So he had all kinds of elaborate things built into the coding for how he collected interviews to protect people's anonymity and privacy. And that's been a hallmark of sexuality research ever since, is taking that data security really, really seriously. I do it in my own work. For example, I do a lot of survey-based studies, and I study things like people's sexual fantasies or people's experiences with infidelity. Uh, you know, this is information that people want to keep private. And so we build in all kinds of tools and we have to go through ethical board approval to say how we're going to maintain that security, where the data is going to be stored, who has access to it, how long the data is going to be kept. So we have a lot of safeguards in place on the research side of things, but there are some challenges when we're bringing in new technologies, like some of these devices that we've talked about, because now we're relying on a third-party company to provide that layer of protection or security for people as well. So we kind of need to work together with these companies to make sure that for participants in research studies, but also just for casual users of this type of technology, that they can have that data privacy and security uh, assured to at least a very high level. Liz, how do you all deal with these types of privacy issues? And where do you see the future going with companies having this types of data? Uh, in terms of how we manage data, uh, we take privacy pretty seriously. For one, we don't sell data uh, for our company. It's just 
it's not something that we do. We're making this for the customers primarily, but also like just in terms of like how we're managing it, there's a couple of different principles, but we put uh, encryption and anonymization first, like day one, when we were setting up the software for it, that was one of the first things that we built into it. And it's a good idea to do because it's hard to kind of backfill privacy settings or, you know, setting things up for privacy after the fact. But then also a lot of it too, is trying to be as clear as possible with what data we're collecting, how we're using it, communicating that with the users about like what we're doing. Also only collecting what we need to use for the vibrator to operate. So we're not collecting things like what's your gender, what's your IP address. Uh, With Lioness, it's Basically, having more of that data is more of a liability for us, especially longer term. Like if there is something that happens and someone is able to get to that data, we don't want to have that data there at all. So we just we don't collect it in the first place. The one exception would be kind of an exception is we have a sort of research platform where we do work with researchers and Lioness users with the Lioness technology for different projects. And usually those researchers need more of that demographic data in order to do their research. And in those cases, we're careful with what we collect, uh, but also we communicate with the users who choose to participate in that research, what sort of data that we're collecting and what the purpose is. And that when collecting that data, that means that the visibility, the likelihood of them being identified within the broader data set is increased. Uh, But it's something that they know about, they, we talk about it with them before they participate in the, in different research studies. And it's something that they either say yes to, or they say no to. Justin, do you have a feel about where the future lies with these companies collecting data, intimate data? Yeah. I mean, this data is very intimate and, you know, it certainly varies depending on the app and the technology that you're using in terms of what is being collected. But it seems like these types of tools are just becoming more and more accessible and there's going to be more and more of this data out there. So I think it's the kind of thing where we need to really think carefully now about how do we want to deal with all of this? You know, on the one hand, as a sex researcher, the possibility that this data might be out there is really tantalizing in a lot of ways because we can't otherwise have means of collecting it, but we don't want to access that data unless people have agreed for it to be used for that purpose. So, you know, it's something where, this all needs to be designed with intentionality. You need government regulation in terms of like how these apps and technologies work to make sure that you have the data safety, privacy, safeguards in effect, and all that other kind of stuff. So this technology, I think, needs to be treated in similar ways to how the data that social media companies are, are collecting is being held as well, you know, because we're just putting more and more of our data out there as we become an ever increasingly digital world. And we really haven't grappled enough yet with that issue of data privacy and security, especially around this really ultra sensitive information about our intimate lives. Justin, that lets me get to the nitty gritty of this, that there are already marginalized populations who you've been studying in terms of this sex research data. And you know, you talk about their data being exploited, you have marginalized populations where their sort of their data will be doubly exploited in this sense. So is there, have you noticed any specific issues in this about different groups, whether it's you know, experience, gender, race, education, socioeconomic status, where you see this intimate data being used for good or for bad that you sort of have seen aspects come to? Well, 
As you were laying out that question, the first place my mind went was back to those fertility tracking apps and the recently shifting landscape around reproductive rights and abortion access in the United States. And there are lots of new laws being passed and lots of concern about technologies like these that are tracking the menstrual cycle and fertility. And could that be used as a way to penalize or punish women who seek abortions in places where they might be illegal, right? So this is one of those things where when we develop these new technologies and put them out there, we don't know how the legal landscape is going to change in other ways and whether that technology could actually become dangerous to you. I think you can say something similar for LGBTQ individuals because we have this raft of anti-LGBTQ laws being passed all across the country uh, in 2023. And we were moving in this direction of greater LGBTQ acceptance, more LGBTQ rights, but we're in this stage now where there's some degree of backlash and lots of these rights and things are being rolled back. And so, you know, having information out there about your sexuality or your gender identity could potentially become dangerous in certain places if people can easily access that. Uh, so it could potentially be a threat to safety. So we need to think about all these things. You know, what is the information we're putting out there? Who has access to it? How is it going to be controlled? How might it be exploited in the future? We really need to think about and grapple with this issue carefully. We've seen where location data has been used as an abortion rights issue in a northern state. We saw that. Actually, there is one that I did see recently where I believe it was in the Catholic Church using data on Grinder, you know, in these hookup apps for men who have sex with men to track whether priests or members of the clergy might be engaging in same-sex activities. So yeah, that has already happened to some degree where, you know, these threats to data privacy can be used and held against people based on their sexuality. Liz, uh, bouncing off the last question, I want to ask a different aspect of using data is for a specific groups so or analyzing them. This is more from a commercial marketing uh, you know, perspectives. Are there some groups significantly happier about their sex life or less happier and your company you know, like to help them? Is there any aspect of the data being used for serving them or for commercial purpose? I would say, probably broadly speaking, uh, people who tend to gravitate towards Lioness tend to be in some sort of... Um, influx or some sort of like life change. We've seen a lot of people who are like in perimenopause or menopause, their bodies are changing, their their sex drive, their sexual function may be changing due to a variety of different reasons, both uh, biological, but just like different, it's sort of a different time in your life of you're able to focus more on yourself, whether you're at a certain point in your career, your kids are not tumbling around. But also another group that we find is interested in lioness tend to be I mean, I would kind of characterize it as like your sort of late 20s, early 30s. They're past their whatever education that they received. Uh, they're at a point in their career where they're getting more established uh, there as well and able to kind of think about themselves and think about what, what you know, is interesting to them, what's pleasurable to them. We've seen those sort of two age groups, I guess. 
uh, that have been particularly interested in Lioness and seeing what changes in data impacts their lives in different ways. Breaking that out further into to other groups of people within that are people who are kind of curious to try new things and they use Lioness and the data as sort of this like visual feedback to see like, if I am had a good night's sleep, what does that look like for me? If I drink a cup of coffee or in certain states where it's legal, uh, CBD and cannabis, like how might that change my own sexual function? And then you have a, another group of people who might be experiencing health changes where they're trying a new medication or different health conditions or chronic issues or cancer or different things like that, that either because of the condition or because of the treatments that they're getting, uh, they may have a change in their own sexual response. And they want to use Lioness as a way to be able to visualize and track what those changes are, what's happening, uh, how different treatments may be impacting uh, their own sexual response or, or even looking at their pelvic floor movements as well. So that's kind of a, I guess, a few different examples of the types of uh, people and the types of like motivations that draw people to a product like Lioness. Justin, following along from that, has there been any studies that establish some sort of precedence for individuals seeing improved satisfaction upon the understanding of their own sexual data? Or are there other tools um, in the industry that give people data on their sex lives? And are there sort of data science issues that you see with those types of tools? Yeah, so... There's a lot of research, I think, that can speak to this. And it shows that the more we understand our own sexuality and the more we just understand about sex in general, the more content we are in our intimate lives and relationships. So if we talk about sex education for a moment, you know, having access to comprehensive sex education, especially that emphasizes sexual communication skills and teaches people the things they really need to know, like proper anatomical names, like what the clitoris is and where it's located, for example. This information empowers people and helps them to lead happier, healthier, more satisfying sexual lives and to build more fulfilling relationships with their partners. So, you know, there are avenues for just sex education in general. And I think these apps, these technologies can be a form of that sex education where it's giving people that data and information that they really need. And maybe also in some cases, a place where they can ask questions that they've never had answers before. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity in this new technology to fill in the sex education gap that currently exists. You know, in the United States, there's still 20 plus states that don't even require sex education. And even in the states that do require it, I think there's about 14 of them that require that it's medically accurate, but the rest are like, nope, just teach something. We don't care if you're teaching correct or useful information at all, just teach something. So that's a big part of the problem in terms of why people struggle with things like sexual satisfaction is because they were just never taught what they need to know about their own body, how to understand themselves as sexual beings, how their sexuality and sexual satisfaction and pleasure might change over time. You know, that's a really important issue. Like only having sex education when you're a teenager, maybe, and maybe getting useful, semi-useful information at that point, that 
can only tell you so much because you as a sexual person evolve and change so much over the course of your life. For example, what turns you on at 20 might be very different from when you're 30 or 40 or 50. What feels good when it comes to sex is going to be different at all of those ages too. So we need lifelong sex education. And that's where this technology can kind of be this form of continuing education for people to learn more about themselves and how to have healthy, satisfying sex. Speaking of uh, some states, you know, do not offer required sex education, that bra- brings me to a broad question because, you know, the attitude towards sex is very different for different cultures, right? In some countries, there's still a taboo topic. Talking about sex education is not even plausible, right? Do you see some big differences for these different cultures? For example, in the in the uh, space of data collections, I would imagine that in certain countries, I can think of some Asian countries trying to collect these sex data might be extraordinarily difficult. You know, just uh, I knew a little bit about collecting data on mental health situations in certain Asian countries. It's it's almost impossible because people think that is not a, a disease, that's some kind of a weak personality. So people will refuse to answer any of the questions. So I want to see if both of you can speak a little bit to the more uh, kind of cross-culture aspect of doing sex research and also providing these uh, services to see what's a big issue there and how data science help to review these issues and how to help to resolve some of these uh, issues. So for Lioness, one of the first countries that we commercialized in uh, after the United States was actually Japan. And that was because there's a great group over there that is spearheading bringing a lot of uh, femtech or like sort of women's health type products and services over to the Japan market uh, called Fermata. It's been pretty cool to work with them uh, in terms of like commercializing and we're kind of together getting a better understanding of the consumer market over there uh, in terms of Japan and, uh, and sex toys and also just products like Lioness that are a little more about self-learning and learning about orgasms and things like that. Uh, So in terms of the reception of it, I'd say that it's been a pretty welcoming reception where uh, Lioness has been actually in stores over there in some of the more like larger commercial stores, which has not been the case in the United States, uh, which is kind of an interesting kind of comparison. Uh, And also another thing being that we've been discussing it as a sort of like medical device in a way um, over there in terms of like uh, the pelvic floor data and using it as a pelvic floor tool as well as a self-pleasure tool. Whereas uh, in the United States, it's actually been pretty difficult to approach that with regulators here because they see it first and foremost as like, this is a sex toy, you know, you can be over there. We don't, we don't touch this. We don't regulate this, you know, anything like that, Uh, which, well, on a business side, frankly, it's, you know, there's sort of an advantage to it in terms of like having fewer of those regulations, but also like as a human who uses sex toys and, you know, wants to have products that are like safe for my body too, as well as everyone else. It's a continuously frustrating thing where regulators don't really want to look at the materials, the safety, the data, the privacy aspects of these types of products. When you talked about this being a pelvic floor tool. Do you mean like post-pregnancy, that kind of thing, or pre-pregnancy for women? And so none of these types of things are regulated? Oh, so pelvic floor tools are regulated in the United States. There are certain things about pelvic floor tools in the U.S. that have been difficult to have regulated or not, because partly because the definition of it when it was originally established was that 
Uh, there needed to be some form of electrostimulation with the pelvic floor tool to be, I'm forgetting all of the terms in the US, but uh, there was like that as like a requirement uh, that I'm re- just recently in the last year, I've been seeing that being uh, changed, which I mean, you know, you don't need electrostimulation <laughs> necessarily, but that's a, another rant for another day. But yeah, in the case of uh, when working with Japan, they've been interested in looking at it with the pelvic floor tool tracking capabilities along with the self-pleasure capabilities. And when I say like pelvic floor tool, it can be partly for people who are uh, prenatal or postpartum, but it's also just for people with different pelvic floor issues that they'd like to address. So not just Kegels, but there's also your sort of um, pelvic floor drops or sometimes they're called anti-Kegels and other sorts of pelvic floor movements and exercises that are involved with that. Thanks. Sorry, Justin, please go ahead. So there are huge cross-cultural differences in attitudes towards sex and attitudes towards sex are much more conservative in some places. And so these apps, these technologies and the internet more broadly, theoretically provide this opportunity to take sex ed and sexual health and wellness into places that need it, that don't really have access to it otherwise. The problem, of course, is that a lot of governments will restrict the sale of some of these devices, or they'll have a lot of internet censorship. And so people's ability to access the technology may be very limited just based on where they live and how the government approaches these types of things. So the unfortunate reality is that in the places that would probably benefit from the tech the most, it's probably going to be the heaviest lift in order to be able to access it. And, you know, just talking about the United States in particular, in terms of access to this kind of information, the companies that make this kind of tech have kind of a heavy bar when it comes to being able to get the product into consumers' hands. I know everybody loves to say that sex sells, but sex is actually a really hard sell. It's not the easy sell that people think it is. And there are so many different layers through which you could analyze this. One is that, okay, how are you going to help people learn about your product in the first place? Well, you can't advertise this stuff on social media because there's all kinds of censorship. Like me, just as a sex educator, not trying to sell something to people, I encounter a lot of that kind of censorship that happens on my social media posts. And I have to be very careful about every single word that I say. You know, I also know a lot of sex therapists who have tried to advertise, for example, on Facebook and Facebook rejects their ad. And so they can't say that they're a sex therapist. Like they literally can't even describe the title of their job. They have to say that they're like a relationship therapist or they have to use some, you know, sleight of hand, different language to kind of get around those censorship issues. So when it comes to something like a sex toy, it it can be a lot harder to get it out there. And then you also have some of the regulatory issues. Like, for example, if you want to get a toy or even a lube cleared by the FDA, that's a really high bar to do. And, you know, if you talk about something like lubricants, very few of the lubricants on the market are actually FDA approved because it's just so hard and so cumbersome to be able to do that. And the same is true with the sex toys. If you want to get FDA approval for a toy being a treatment for a particular sexual difficulty, it's hard to do that as well. And then you also have the issue with the retailers often being reluctant to put sexual health products in their stores. We've seen some shifts in that in recent years. Like you can now go to Target and lots of pharmacies and buy lubes and even some sex toys. So that's changing a little bit, but it's hard to get this information out there so that people even know what tools are available to them and how to purchase it. 
So they're not regulated and people putting their bodies and so is that just okay? Just whatever it does. Well, and, and so the way you get around that with something like a lubricant is you just don't market it as a lubricant. You call it something else, right? So that's that where... What, what, <laughs> how creative you can be? What, what would that be? Like seriously. <laughs> you know, if you want to use the term personal lubricant to describe something, you know, it has to pass this certain threshold. So they just call it something that's slightly different. You know, it's still, it looks just like any other lube and you can talk about it as being slippery and all these other sorts of things, but you just don't call it the sort of protected medical term. And then you can sidestep all of the regulations. That's, you know, so if you classify it, I think instead as a uh, cosmetic instead of a medical device, then, you know, the bar, the threshold is just so much lower for it. So yeah, actually, I I think that might be more the bigger issue is like, are you calling it a medical device or is it a novelty or a cosmetic? Because the bar, the threshold is very different for those things, much lower. It'd be oil or serum, other words. Oil or serum, I see. I just want to mention in terms of it, in terms of regulations, a funny story that we have. Uh, so this is for like FCC certification for like having a Bluetooth device. Uh, we basically caused one of the like international FCC certification companies to have like an emergency HR meeting when we came to them to like get our FCC certification for Lioness because they're like, who's going to review this? Who's comfortable enough to review this? It was just like senior VPs in a room like talking about this. And then I'm, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but this one guy named like, John in Sunnyvale, California was like, it's fine, I'll do it. <laughs> and it was like, thanks to John, he went ahead and did the the testing and gave us our FCC certification. But we were surprised how difficult it was to, and like the commotion that it caused to just get that done. That's really interesting. Well, we always end our podcast. Unfortunately, I think we have a thousand questions more we could ask, but we always end our podcast with a magic wand question. So we we asked this of both of you, if you could wave your magic wand, what if? So, you know, we've discussed some ways for users to help understand themselves more and how data can play, you know, this huge role in allowing an individual to experience more pleasure in their sex lives. So if you could, each of you, Justin, I'll start with you, if you could wave your magic wand and get rid of any myth about sex, sexuality, or sexual health, what would it be and why? So with these questions, it's so hard to limit it to just one thing. So I'm going to sneak two in there. So one of them is the idea that sex is just one thing. You know, if you look at how people define what sex is, a lot of them define it very narrowly as penetrative intercourse. And some people don't even count sex as actually being sex if an orgasm doesn't happen. So what we see in the data is that when people adopt these very narrow, restrictive views of sex, that it tends to undermine sexual satisfaction. It leads to a lot of conflict in relationships because partners might be interested in sex, but they're on different pages in terms of what they want. But if they expanded their erotic menu and knew that there were more options on the table, there would be more opportunities for them to connect and to find shared ground. So I like to encourage people to expand their definition of sex, to recognize that sex can be anything that you want it to be. And the thing, the other thing I'll tie in with that is to also recognize that just because an orgasm doesn't happen during sex, that 
that it doesn't count or that it wasn't a very good experience. You know, we experience this thing called the orgasmic imperative where we put all this pressure on ourselves to have an orgasm every time we have sex. But paradoxically, the more of that pressure we apply to ourselves, the less likely it is that an orgasm will happen. So expand your definition of sex and recognize that, hey, if an orgasm happens, great, it's a fantastic bonus, but you can still have a lot of fun even if an orgasm doesn't happen. There's so many things I'd love to wave my metaphorical magic wand at. For me right now, it would be, I wish that female sexual function uh, in this case would be more discussed generally, uh, be more be more of a thing that's just discussed because uh, I've recently been talking to uh, several different like doctors and researchers who are interested in using the lionist sort of technology in different ways. And they talk about whether it's like with cancer or whether it's looking at like different uh, types of like prescription medication use, like antidepressants and birth control. Uh, they have questions about how does sexual function change when you use this? And we're like, I don't know, do you know? And they're like, we don't have any studies on this either. Like this is something that we want to work on. And then you see it sort of percolate down when people are going through like chemotherapy or they're going through postpartum. And there's like these just things, these events in their lives that change their bodies, that change that will change your sexual function. And when they're looking for information from the experts or their resources, a lot of those experts either they don't have as much information as they'd like, or they may encounter pushback from doctors, say, who are like, oh, it's fine. This is normal you have a little bit of pain, like that's that's normal during postpartum or things like that. So if I were to wave the magic wand, it would be, I would want more information, whether it's from us or other researchers, other tools, whatever's out there to just get this information out there, get this into the hands of different doctors and experts and people so that they have a better understanding of what's going on with, with their bodies when they have questions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated on all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HDSR. A special thanks to our producers, Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby Mack, and assistant producer, Ariane Winfrick. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review, everything data science and data science for everyone.